The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. The intro. And we are live. It is April 16th, 2020. Your taxes should have been due today, but they uh, yesterday, but they are not. Boris Johnson has his approval rating has gone up, proving that the that the coronavirus is that not. That guy will all do bad. anything for a vote. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we don't have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, we actually have a kind of a cool show today. We're going to talk to Dan Dresner about the Toddler in Chief book, which is now out. And uh, as I have said before, uh, you know, they don't award Nobel Prizes yet for Twitter threads. But when they start, the Toddler in Chief Twitter thread will get the first Nobel Prize uh, for Twitter threads, if there is any justice in the world. Um, the, um, and then in the last 15 minutes of the show, we are going to settle a, 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 a condo board uh, fight that has made its way to the New York Times. Maggie Feldman Pilch's neighbor, who has been complaining to the New York Times as well as to the condo board about her practicing her arias. Uh, we're going to have Maggie on. We're going to edit her letter to the New York Times. <laughs> and we're going to hear her sing so Are that we, you can I decide like for yourself. Thing. We can throw this I up. I was told there was going to be no singing. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> no singing by you. Yes, OK, just making sure we're clear on that. But, good, good. No, Maggie is going to sing oh, so okay. that we can tell whether the, the neighbor's complaint has any merit. Oh, and awesome. are we uh, going to be like decide. Olympic judges when, like, you know, put up cards of like, you know, one. We time. are. There's actually a polling function on there Zoom is, webinars, yes. and we're going to use it. Uh, so if you're watching on uh, YouTube and you want to join us over at Zoom, where you'll be able to vote on Maggie, um, you can also ask Dan questions about the toddler in chief thread, and you can help us edit Maggie's letter. Uh, so that's our show for the day. Uh, we're two minutes in. We've got 58 to go. Dan, back-to-back -back appearances on Morning Joe, one of them with me and a basket of my laundry in the back. Um, uh, that, that was, I want to stress, the fault of the Morning Joe uh, camera team, which kept telling me, tilt your camera more and more and more. They didn't say, now we have your laundry in the shot. Wait, did you talk oh. about in lieu of show on Morning Joe? It didn't, uh, no, it come, didn't up. come up. It didn't come up. God, guys. Sorry. I'm like I sitting what, over here waiting for like, United Talent Agency. Okay, what was me. Like, you know, I'm supposed to be talking about the book. We're supposed to be talking about Trump. Was I supposed to say, by the way, Ben, what's the deal with the laundry behind you? <laughs> well, it has certainly attracted attention on Twitter. Um, yes. So are uh, you familiar with this new Twitter account? I think it's rate my Skype background or rate my Skype. Uh, <laughs> I'm really? not. I'm, I'm afraid to look at it now. <laughs> so I, I only got introduced to this because I, having done Morning Joe yesterday, 
um, I did it in my study with, you know, and in a different background with basically it was my diplomas were behind me. And basically what this account does is it rates, you know, all everyone who appears on these shows, but is doing so from their house and rates how, what is the quality of their, their backgrounds in terms of like, you know, is it behind? So books? it's like, so it's like, it's hot or not. Are you like, hot or not it, for it, your Zoom background? Hot or not. Yeah, it's not you. <laughs> it's an interior decorating thing, to be clear. Um, well, I want I want to say that you let let's let's uh, let's be you know ethnic here for a minute, Dan. Your background this morning was really Jewy. I mean, you had <laughs> you had more than one Hanukkah there. Yes, you had like plate. yeah. I mean, it was like. Uh, wearing a big shirt that said Jew. That's <laughs> <laughs> a toddler, the Trump, you know. Um, but but yes, yeah, so let me put it this way. I did the one yesterday here and I got, this guy rates things, this this Twitter account rates things, at, you know, out of 10. I only got three out of 10. It was, it was you know, they didn't like the chair. They didn't like the white background. They didn't like the diploma. So this morning I upped my game a little bit. I moved it down to a different room and he gave me a six out of 10. So what'd so you get? I got a six. Wow, out of 10. I want to check out. Like, like I think, do I get more points or fewer for the laundry? Because that's bold. So I mean, fewer. not a lot of people are are doing laundry baskets. This is true on Amazon. Uh, but I think there's a reason for that. To be fair, but <laughs> yes, it, it's uh, you, you. We'll find out. I will. I will try to tweet at him about this question. All right. Um, <laughs> But these look, these are the important questions. <laughs> these are why we have you on the show. No, I'm uh, sorry. I love Kate's background. I've never seen this before. I didn't know you could do this. That is, I know exactly what that is. Yes, but. everyone knows. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just I was like, someone's hat got it had to have made this. Uh, and yes, indeed, someone has made this <laughs> all the way to the end. Um, yeah, so um, all right. So Dan, uh, for Talk those people who haven't read the book or who are not familiar with the toddler in chief thread, give us the two minute overview. The two minute overview is that the book at least is, is making two arguments, one based on the thread and one more sophisticated. The, the one, the simple argument is that Donald Trump really does act like a toddler. Um, you know, if you look at any sort of trait we traditionally associate with toddlers, um, prone to temper tantrums, short attention span, poor impulse control, uh, oppositional behavior, um, aversion to new foods even. Um, you know, in all of these ways, uh, the, the president acts like a toddler and the evidence for this is not, does not come from his critics, it comes from his staffers and subordinates and, you know, fellow Republicans. And so, I, you know, developed a Twitter thread that is now, I believe, at 1,328 examples of someone with a rooting political interest in Donald Trump succeeding, nonetheless describing him the way you would describe a toddler. The second and more, you know, more subtle argument is that this is a bigger problem now than it would have been 50 years ago, um, because essentially the guardrails checking the president's power have been eroding you know, slowly over time, um, whether it's the constitutional checks that Congress and the, uh, the judiciary are supposed to impose, whether it's the sort of bureaucratic you know, procedures within the executive branch, um, whether it's the societal norms or political norms in terms of expected behavior um, by the president or the commander in chief. All of those have been worn down to a nub, many of them long predating Donald Trump, to be fair. 
Um, because in, in many ways, the sort of dysfunction that is, is taken the American political scene, into, including the rise of political polarization and the erosion of trust in institutions, basically caused almost every other institution to delegate power to the president under the presumption that the president was the last adult in Washington, DC. And then we elected Donald Trump. I mean, isn't this kind of a, isn't this kind of a knock on toddlers? <laughs> I mean, actually, like, I mean, yeah. like, honestly, I'm not actually, I'm actually being kind of serious. Like there is like, he's not a toddler though. There is like some type of like, intentionality the toddlers are simply not capable of yet because they have no reason decision making and no like and no kind of they literally don't have the cognitive function for it and right. so okay so a, a couple of responses to this the first is is that I, I so there are ways in which toddlers you know are behaving intentionally but as you say they lack the cognitive capacity you know the, the reason toddlers have temper tantrums or the reason toddlers have short attention span um you know, a lot of their behaviors that we don't necessarily are not thrilled with, they're doing the best they can under limited cognitive, you know, circumstances. So you're right, Trump is different um, in that respect. The biggest difference is simply that toddlers grow up. Toddlers eventually grow out of the toddler phase. Um, you know, they're intensely curious people. Uh, you know, toddlers are intensely curious. They want to learn things. Um, and Trump occasionally displays that kind of curiosity. I mean, whenever you, you see you know, stories about Trump and the Space Force. He's fascinated by these kinds of things. He'll ask questions, or you know, even the the the, uh, the book that uh, Lachlan Markey and Asawan Swepsang uh, came out with, uh, "Sinking in the Swamp," uh, talking about how Trump, anytime Reince Priebus, his first chief of staff, would come into the room, Trump felt compelled to ask him questions about badgers because Priebus was from Wisconsin. So there are occasionally moments like that. Um, but you're right. I, this is not meant to cast aspersion to toddlers, um, although I will admit that perhaps my own experience having had toddlers, there were some issues I could able to you know, finally express through the book. Um, but the biggest difference, obviously, is that in contrast to toddler, you know, to most toddlers, toddlers do eventually conform or have to obey authority figures like parents or you know, extended family or daycare providers or what have you. Donald Trump is the commander in chief, uh, you know, and the president of the United States. So there is, there, there are far fewer checks on him, particularly within the executive branch. And so this gives him more carte blanche and also makes it more difficult for his staffers to staff him the same way that, you know, poorly run daycare facilities or badly paid daycare workers constantly cycle in and out. In some ways that describes the Trump White House as well. They get paid a little bit better, but they're not respected. They're not, uh, you know, afforded the responsibilities they're supposed to. It's no surprise that, you know, he's gone through, what is it, four chiefs of staff and four national security advisors. And don't yeah, we all I mean, have a little bit more respect for daycare workers and White House, chief, former White House chiefs of staffs now that they've had to deal, now that we know what they've had to deal with? Yeah. I, although, I mean, I think yes, although to be fair, most presidents before Trump, I really don't think displayed you know, anywhere close to these kinds of pathologies in terms of their behavior. So staffing Barack Obama or staffing George W. Bush was a far easier task than staffing this guy. So here's my question. Have you gotten any response to this from Trump world or Trump world media? Yes, um, you know, not, not I, I, in the form of, you know, I get emails as I'm sure you both, you know, do, um, whenever I've published something, I, I published a piece in the post that was essentially a sort of updating of the toddler hypothesis, but applied to how Trump was handling the coronavirus. And all the toddler traits 
that I talk about in the book are on full display in terms of how he was responded to the coronavirus. And um, yeah, I got, you know, a variety of, of uh, emails from irate MAGA uh, types. I also got a few heartfelt ones, to be fair. Um, I got a very nope. affecting letter email, which I then wrote about again for Post Everything on, um, from this woman who was sheltering in place in Oregon, who, you know, described the sort of pain and anguish of the feel that the country is divided. And I, I and I think in particular, I've, I've gotten a sort of a vein of criticism I've gotten is, how dare you describe the president as a toddler during this time of emergency? And yeah, so I've, I've, yeah. I've gotten a lot of that too, but I'm actually asking about something else, which is oh, okay. either, so not the letters that show up or the tweets, but I was interested in when, when Susan and I released our book, you know, which was widely reviewed, except in like no discussion of it in National Review, no oh, discussion yeah. of it in, um, uh, um, uh, in The Federalist, right? Like, like, like a concerned even to denounce it. And I'm curious whether you've had any reaction in the locales that actually intellectually represent Trumpism. To my knowledge, no. Um, I will say the book has not been out for a long time. I, I do know there are some reviews that might be coming out in the next week. Um, and it's possible that, that, to be honest, given the, the play it got on Morning Joe, given the fact that it's now, you know, the sales rank on Amazon is pretty good, I think, um, that might cause it to capture more attention. So, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the reviews like that might be coming, um, which, frankly, I welcome. I, I'm sort of curious to know what the Federalists would think of it. Yeah, I mean, I was I was actually disappointed that they. Uh, I mean, neither Susan nor I would be able to go on Hannity or Tucker Carlson and talk about it just because of pre-existing contracts elsewhere. But I do think it's interesting that the reaction of the uh, the Trumpist press to um, books like this is not to denounce them or to engage them at all, really, no, but to, just to pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, I'll be curious to see if there is any critique. Again, the, the, the foundational element of both the Twitter thread and the book is that the overwhelming bulk of the evidence I'm providing that Trump is acting like a toddler does not come from people like Nancy Pelosi. It does not come from people like you or, you know, Ross Douthat or Adam Serwer or what have you. It's coming from his, the, staff. his own staffers talking to reporters. Um, and so really in that instance, you have to, it, it becomes, you know, if I was trying to get inside the mind of, of a conservative, you know, Trump supporter criticizing the book, the, the one way you could do it, I would imagine, or the one, the one angle you could take is this just shows how biased the mainstream media is against Trump, except again, it's all quotes from, you know, his staffers. So unless you think that, unless you really think the quotes are entirely made up, like Trump occasionally tweets this, um, you don't have a, have a a line of attack there. And even folks no, but like maybe Ford the line of attack is this shows how deep the deep state conspiracy against Trump is that they're they're constantly uh, whispering in reporters' ear uh, bullshit about the president and lies about him. And in the face of his great leadership, they're, uh, they're uh, uh, you know, whispering calumnies in uh, 
um, and Dresner is uh, gleefully lapping up the uh, the propaganda that the deep state is laundering through the fake news media. Okay, and I guess the response I would you know offer to that is, if the deep state includes people like Lindsey Graham, Newt Gingrich, <laughs> Tucker Carlson, Rex Tillerson, Paul Ryan, um, you know, and Bob Corker, well. Okay, then fine. That that you you know, I can't necessarily. Then you've got a very capacious definition of the deep state, and it turns out that the only people who like Donald Trump, you know, is a extremely small sliver um, of the United States. So I think you know the response is, if you want to define the deep state that broadly, then the definition has no meaning. We're all the deep state, as it turns out. Um, you know, and then I think essentially the criticism lacks meaning, and also it's a damning indictment of Trump himself, which is. You know, if he's alienated this many people within his own party, um, then it suggests he will never govern terribly well. Um, I mean, I don't really think uh, of him doing a whole lot of governing, but no, that's like, I mean, does. like, but I mean, but I, and it hasn't improved. But he's not a leader then either. In other words, if, if he, you know, whatever you think the president is supposed to do, I mean, clearly you're right. He doesn't govern. And, and by the way, that's the line that I, I quote from Tucker Carlson in the, in the book where he says he doesn't think Trump has the capacity to do these kinds of things. He, he, no. Um, he says Clearly this, not. true. So in, in that sense, then you have to then fall back on, well, you know, Trump is using the bully pulpit. He's a charismatic leader. That's what he's doing. In which case you have to point out that he sucks at it in the sense that, yes, he absolutely is charismatic to you know, the 40% of the country that likes him. And that's it. And that's really, you know, if your one job is to actually, you know, capture the attention and admiration of Americans and actually rally them, then God, he's a crappy president. But, you know, so it-, it, it well, you know. I, I, okay, so I'm like, obviously, I mean, I shouldn't say obviously, people don't necessarily know my politics, like obvious, I, I, but I share a lot of your similar feelings, your gut instinct, your normative takes on this guy. I take, I, I find the, I find the petulantness of him and his personality. And then also just his, as we talked about what he displays cognitively uh, to be very similar to a toddler. That's, I think it's a perfectly apt definition or an apt comparison. But I do think that one of the things that strikes me and I, so I, I have to just kind of like, I'm gonna make a age myself about how not old I am um, to this extent. Like I remember so deeply 2000 to 2008, the hatred for George Bush. Yeah. Like that was just like this vitriol mm -hmm. of, of like, I just remember like, I come from, I, I've said many, many times, I come from upstate New York. I came from a super Republican conservative town, very religious. I vacation in like Cape Cod. Um, it was super hippy dippy and full of like liberal elite. Um, I went to Brown, uh, everyone there. Oh my God. What, George Bush. I know, exactly. Yeah. It was like, I remember, you know, and there was- Did you major in semiotics? No, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, no, no. But um, I couldn't even pronounce that for like four of the years that I was at Brown. So, like, but the, um, but my whole, but the, uh, 
but my point is this, which is that like, God, do we have short memories? God, are we not just goldfish swimming in a bowl coming around again, three seconds later and being like, oh, here we are, haven't been this way. And around we go again. And I just kind of think that there is something to be said here for like, God, people thought you couldn't get lower than low on George Bush. Like he can't talk. He can't do this. You can't do, he's a war criminal. He's all of these things. He's lied this many times. Like yeah. I just- like, so all I gotta say, like the rhetoric around Trump, the hate, the hateful kind of the name calling that he's an idiot. He's smart. He's actually brilliant. He's actually a tactician. He's just a snake oil salesman. He's an actor. He's an entrepreneur. He's a toddler, you know, whatever it is. I'm kind of like, isn't this just the latest, like, this is, this is just the latest kind of partisan takedown of this person that we pin all of our are like all of our qualms on and how, you know, so anyways, that's kind of, I'm just going to leave that there. Well, so I guess I would say the following, first of all, you're absolutely correct to point out that there are ways in which we've been here before. And indeed, you know, by George W. Bush's, by the end of his second term, his pop is his, I think he was polling in the low thirties, which, which Trump has never fallen down to. So, you know, you're right that, that in some ways we've been here before in terms of an unpopular president, but that said, you know, I, I guess I would say two responses. The, the, the first is, is that while George W. Bush was in some ways, you know, the, the sort of neoconservatism in terms of his foreign policy, you know, put him somewhat at odds with some elements of American foreign policy. You know, if you listen to his rhetoric and saw how he, you know, went about implementing foreign, you know, foreign policy, and for that matter, domestic policy, um, it wasn't that far out of bounds for what the country looked like, you know, what, what the country, the values the country had espoused before. Well, we didn't think that at the time. We, I mean, we, we thought it was pretty far out of bounds. A lot of people no, did. No, see, this is where things get tricky. I mean, you I mean, know, yeah, like- so I, Now we have like a whole new, like the sky is like, is made of like sackcloth. And like, we have new, like we have new ideas about really how bad, bad can be. I'm not going to, I'm not going to push you yeah. on that, but- do we ever really know how bad bad can be until like we get our night? Like our well, obviously, person? like you know, we we can get we, we we can it can get worse. And I always used to um, I was joking about this before that that you know as a political scientist I always like to joke we make lousy pundits because you know people ask us oh what does this thing mean this is a game changer right and most political scientists will be like nah it doesn't make much of a difference really no it's not that big of a deal it's not that big of a deal the night Trump won um, in the next couple of days you know. My family was despondent. My neighbors are despondent. You know, they're on so and so forth. And so this was the time they came to me and says, it, it doesn't make a, you know, it's not that big of a deal, right? And I'd be like, no, it's a huge goddamn deal. Um, you know, so it was like the one time they wanted me to say that this was a bit, you know, this wasn't that big of a deal was the one time I said, oh no, we are, can I curse on here? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I love like, no, that people ask permission. What lovely civil guests we have on our show, Ben. Just <laughs> don't use copyrighted material like Kate did. <laughs> what did you do? I played Dolly Parton's nine to five at the end uh, of the song, at the end of the show, and they and they took it off of YouTube. <laughs> Anyways, it was by the way a YouTube clip that I played. Yeah. But like never mind. They took, it off. <laughs> they took our show down. Synergy, they for God's sake, video I can't believe that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like you know, I said yeah, you know, people would ask me, it's like oh, it's it, it's no big deal, right? and I would say no, we're totally fucked right now. It's it's just there's no other way to put it. Um, although I have to admit, I think even I was not, although I actually do have a sentence in the book where I say, um, and this is, this is one of the awkward things about promoting this book so far, which is, 
you know, it's intended simultaneously to amuse people, but also to, you know, scare them a little bit. And the issue is, is that we're now on the scary side and there's like a certain existential dread that people don't necessarily want to deal with. But I, I literally have a sense in the conclusion that says, based on Trump's behavior as cataloged in this book, the idea of Trump coping with a true crisis, a terrorist attack, a global pandemic, a great power clash with China is truly frightening. Um, you know, and this is all written, obviously, before the, the coronavirus. Program. Yeah, I mean, so like, I, I think the, you know, you can you can plot any presidency along uh, it, crudely uh, along two axes, right? One is how good is the president? Um, By good, you mean competent? I mean, or? some combination of visionary, competent, okay. Uh, but not well like moral, but not moral good. Right, right. Well, I don't. I'm not talking about personal conduct here. I'm talking about like their performance. So yeah, right, okay. like like, and so you know you have your your good, um, you have your good presidents. Then you have your lucky presidents. Yeah. Right. People who just like you know Calvin Coolidge was really lucky. Right. Like Roaring Twenties and you know um, and got out just in time. Um, the great presidents are really good and unlucky in the sense that they are, uh, their greatness shows through because they have to manage in periods that where bad decisions would be disastrous. So that's Abraham Lincoln, right? Or FDR, or, yeah. Or FDR, right? So you actually see the greatness because the default position of the country is really bad. Right, um, Washington, yeah, also, yeah. Washington, well, Washington is, is a little different because he's formative, um, but- um, Or, I mean, I would actually say in, in, in a contrary example, I would almost say Carter. Ca well, ca Carter, right, Carter is an interesting example. He's moderately competent. He was a bit of a micromanager. He had some bad instincts. He had some good instincts. He's super unlucky. And George I, hate, w I hate to say this, George W. Bush would yes. actually be George the George W. Bush is super yeah. unlucky, right? You know, Mike Morrell, uh, ha who was uh, acting director of CIA um, and was involved in both the uh, bin Laden uh, operation and the Iraq intelligence, has said publicly that he said to Barack Obama, the intelligence associated with the bin Laden raid I am less confident in it. The case that bin Laden is in the Abbottabad compound is less strong than the, much less strong than the case that there was WMD in Iraq. Yeah. And he, he said that to Obama and Obama pulls the trigger on that raid anyway. And of course, there are no weapons of mass destructions in Iraq and bin Laden is in the Abbottabad compound, right? And so one of them, is a roll the dice tactical gamble that pays off brilliantly and it probably contributes meaningfully to Obama's reelection. The other one is the decline and fall of the Bush presidency along with Katrina. And, you know, and so like, I do think like I, I my enthusiasm for the Bush administration is I assure you under control, but I do think he is profoundly unlucky and he made some reasonable bets and reasonable gambles as well as some less than reasonable ones that so, just, just had bad payouts. Right, so I'm curious how then, then, you know, 
how do we judge the Trump years then? I mean, I, I think we're all in agreement that he's not a very good president. Um, are you saying he's also unlucky? Well, I'm saying he was bad and extremely lucky for three years. Yeah. And then he became bad and unlucky, which is, by the way, pretty rare in American history. Um, you know, that you get, like, I think you saw it with James Buchanan. I was about to um, say Buchanan, yeah. Um, and there are these catastrophes, uh, I think, probably, I mean, Herbert Hoover, interestingly, was not that bad. He was actually pretty competent and pretty able. He is probably the most unlucky president in American history relative to his competence. I like these, um, I like these bimodalities of like putting them next to each other because I think that they do kind of like, they do kind of do a nice job of making sense of like, of separating out the fact that there's things that you can can, can control in a four year period and things that you simply cannot yeah. control. And no amount of wonderful leadership is going to make your economy sing and no amount of like, you know, really great, um, really great, um, no, no really great economy or world events are going to make your presidency sing either. And so- On, on the other hand, People um, will notice less on the lit on the latter one, though. <laughs> right. On the other hand, you know, war leadership. Um, the people forget how terrific the performance of George W. Bush was in the immediate aftermath of 9/11. But it was actually quite great um, yeah. in in important ways, and important ways that we've forgotten, like his trip to the Islamic Center his trip to ground zero. I mean, these were really good moments. And I don't know if they're forgotten. They're, they're, I mean, in some ways, Trump is reminding people of them in the, in the ways in which, you know, when it actually is the, the response to, to Kate's question, which is very often the, the, the issue of, well, is Bush really that much better than Trump? And you can point to things that Bush did that did receive, you know, uh, you know, in retrospect, at least bipartisan acclaim. But what um, about like, what about the moment? Okay, so remember, like, and this was in like Fahrenheit 9-11 on the L, like, you know, just it was pulled out, but we all saw it way before then. But the moment in which he's reading the to, to, he's reading to school children. Oh, my kid yes. And yeah. he's whispered in his ear yeah. and he goes on for another like 30 minutes or something like that. Or maybe so it's I, just five. I totally defend him on that. I mean, I, I do too. Now so in his I, defense, he was he was completely he was he was cut down for an, uh, not acting quickly enough. I mean, in the same way, ostensibly that like it took Trump three or four days to get his shit together on figuring out what to do about COVID. I think when you're standing three or four days is, but it's yeah. more like six weeks. I, I'm, I'm yes, gonna, I know. I'm and I'm, and being, I'm as being generous sending, as possible. He's still sending mixed messages yeah. about it. Look, I will give any president a lot of latitude standing in front of a group of kids and Andy Card leans over and whispers in his ear, uh, another plane has hit the other tower, America is under attack, and you decide to finish reading My Pet Goat, um, rather than panic a bunch of children and storm out of the Wait, room. Wait, did it really take him a half hour to finish? No, it was it was the it was the length of a children's book. Okay, I was just saying, and, like that, that's so, a big difference. Like I would read the rest of the book and then immediately get the hell out of there. And he spent he spent thirty minutes trying to spell potato, Dan. 
No, no, that's Dan Quayle. I know, I was joking. So look, I, I mean, I'll give anybody some latitude on that. Um, and he, uh, there were definitely some fumbles. Um, and I think, you know, and there were some significantly bad policy calls. Um, I think the immediate aftermath of 9-11 on the part of the Bush administration was pretty damn good, actually, uh, all things considered. And the, the problem arose 18 months later when they shifted their attention back to Iraq. Um, and I, I really, I, I think they laid a lot of positive groundwork for a lot of things in that period, uh, some of which, of course, uh, went too far, particularly involving CIA custody of detainees, um, but some of which were really important. And, um, and I think if they had not done Iraq, we would remember that period really differently. But look, I, I wanna say everything I just said about George W. Bush, um, you could also say about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? I mean, we went a long, and, and Abraham Lincoln, by the way, we went a long time, the North went a long time without winning a major battle in the Civil War. Um, and the period in which the Civil War was considered a quagmire that maybe you needed to elect a different president to extricate yeah. yourself from. So what's the difference? The difference is at the end of the day, the Civil War went well. At the end of the day, the Iraq invasion went badly. And so you retroactively read all those things completely differently, including, by the way, the civil liberties violations, which what? is the, the fundamental story of the Civil War. Right, the suspension, not of, habeas the suspension corpus, right? of habeas corpus. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me, so I'd say two things on this. The, the first is, is that I'm even uncomfortable now comparing Trump to other presidents because I, and I'm acutely sensitive to this. Uh, a, a colleague of mine, Dan Nexon, who's a professor of political science at Georgetown, has, you know, a couple of years ago once described the dangers of political scientists trying to talk about Trump. And the danger is what he refers to as analytical normalization, which is the moment you start talking about Trump in comparison to other presidents, because that's what you would naturally do if you're a political scientist. It, it almost implicitly makes Trump seem like, oh, he's just another kind of president. You know, how do we code him and so on and so forth? And he's not. He really is in many ways such an outlier, even compared to George W. Bush. Um, that, that, Find that, him closest to Andrew Jackson. Yeah. In, well, in I mean, temperament. I, I think I said this in the book. Like there, he has elements of Andrew Jackson in him. He has elements of Andrew Johnson in him as well. Yes. Um, you know, and, and by the way, those elements aren't the good elements that these people <laughs> had either, I would add. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, that's the issue, but actually I, I do want to ask, um, Ben then, and, and I guess Kate as well. So by that notion, I agree with your, your argument that essentially there are events that when you're living through them, look like they're near run things or can go either way. It's like Shakespeare, you know, you know, Shakespeare's comedies and tragedies actually look very similar to each other, you know, acts until, one, until the last five scene that, that determines which way it goes. I guess my question is, do you, is there a scenario whereby, you know, we look back at this and think this was Trump's greatest moment? You know, yes, it, it's, he started out badly, but he really rallied to the cause. And, you know, it turns out that, that, you know, that, that, you know, America grew stronger than ever and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, I, I, I can't look forward and say that could never happen because 
you know, the world is full of weird things that happen. And are some of them weirder than Donald Trump being remembered as a great figure in history? I don't know, maybe, um, you know, we're evolved from uh, protoplasm, that's pretty implausible. And so maybe we evolve in a direction where all these uh, just all these features that you deride as uh, like a toddler and I deride as uh, undignified and inappropriate and abusive become admired and um, and so sure is that possible um, I think this is the Mick Mulvaney argument by the way um, it, you know John Carl's new book I think he he revealed that the the nugget that he revealed was that Mulvaney when he first got appointed chief of staff you know, had some retreat at Camp David and gave all the White House staffers some book talking, explaining how madmen are actually great leaders because they think out of the box or something. Right. And so, like, you know, I, I do think there's a, um, you, I, let me give you an example um, that I think is actually not crazy. Mm -hmm. um, Genghis Khan. Right, so Genghis Khan. I really am interested to see where this goes. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so this is actually compelling to me. I think so Genghis is Khan yeah. is by any reasonable standard uh, a genocidal maniac. He also, um, he is also, his Y chromosome is in a measurable percentage of all people, all males in Asia. It actually, the, that, that chromosome has a name at the Genghis Khan chromosome. Um, and that is because he raped a girl in every town that he, you know, spent a night in. Um, and um, yet in Mongolia, he is thought of somewhat the way we think of George Washington. And so is it possible? Now, on the other hand, Genghis Khan had a immense success, which was the conquest of all of Asia and, um, and um, you know, this immense empire that was larger than, I think it was larger than the Roman empire at its- Oh, at, easily, yes. At its height. Um, and so, um, and it also had immense stability and, and longevity. And so, you know, uh, could you imagine a scenario in which Trump has some incredible accomplishment that we have to reevaluate all these um, all these deficiencies, personality traits in order to accommodate. Uh, the Mongols were unbelievably murderous. I mean, murderous in a way that we did not see the likes of again until the 20th century. Um, and, you know, people talk about how glorious medieval Iraq was, medieval Baghdad was, it was the shining, it never recovered. Baghdad never recovered from the sack by the Mongols. Um, to this day, it has not recovered. And, you know, and so like, these are, these are seriously bad people in a way that we don't talk about them historically that way, because we've waived all the rules because there's some, like recognition that this was successful. 
And so could you imagine, I think you would need Donald Trump to do something that was undeniably historically important and resonant. And, uh, you know, right now his tenure, uh, largely because of coronavirus, because the luck ran out, is one of unre unremitting failure, right? The economy is going to be by the time the next numbers are out, will be dramatically worse than when he came into office. Unemployment, which he was singing about only a couple of months ago, will be dramatically higher. He's a, he, you know, and of course, we're all shacked up at home and people are, get, are dying and are sick. And so, you know, there's, a, there's not a lot to crow about, um, much less the conquest of all of Asia. But I do think, you know, there are these people that you look back and you say, we had to write, rewrite everything that was normative in light of their accomplishments, including genocide. Yeah. So, well, on that happy note, I was going to say that, uh, no, but I actually, so I have a different tact, which is like, makes it less about people and more about events. Cause I want to answer Dan's pose pose this question by asking him basically going back to something that he said about how he told all of um his loved ones that basically no this really was a big deal and everything really was going to be different after the 2016 um u.s election um and so that feels like there's been a few moments like this in my lifetime there was the financial crisis of 2000 2008 2009 mm -hmm. there was obviously 9-11, there was the 2016 election, now there's COVID. Those are different in kind, I think, that there are certain types of very acute moments that happen very quickly, like 9-11 and like Hiroshima. Shocks. Yeah. Hiroshima, or like, or kind of like Chernobyl, where there is like one event and it happens and then the rest is just like fallout, okay? Mm -hmm. And then like, Kind of similarly, like you can't really say the same about elections and markets, even though they have one event, because they're they always are kind of about um, they're always they're, the impacts of elections and markets are always about the fallout. They're not actually the trauma of them is not in like one great moment of death or destruction or something like that. It is about the signaling of later fallout. Um, and so. I just kind of want to say that like in all of those moments, I remember people talking in 9-11 and saying like, well, uh, I was a senior in high school and them saying you're never going like the, the world's never going to be the same. And me not ever, not me not understanding what that really meant and me truly never understanding what that meant until I decided to like, until the world continued marching forward and I saw the change happen before my eyes that like right. could not have been kind of forecast in the same way. So too with this presidency, I feel like, and so too with like the pandemic, I feel like there are just not going to be moments in which, uh, you know, you're, you, I, I want, there should be a word for moments that are so powerful, like the 2016 election where you feel the foreboding feeling, but nothing in your immediate life has changed none of your social norms have initially changed. Right. Like nothing is there, but you all like, it's like there, it's on the wall. Like you see, like you hear about the Germans marching into the city, you know, it's going to happen. You see them putting people onto, onto, into, into train cars and people disappearing, but it's not you yet. And it's not all your friends. Like, and I don't want to get into like a hand and I like a run, like type of like the like slow atrocity type of thing. But I do think there's an element of that, of just like how much people, the human brain can like take in all at once in terms of trauma and life events and shifting norms and these moments of panic and how many people have, 
have a flashpoint like we've had with the pandemic, like we had with 2016, like we had with 9-11 to kind of like to stop and pivot from and go forward um, versus like whether what, what was that moment in like in World War II and the Holocaust? I mean, maybe Pearl Harbor for the for the Americans. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, so I'd say this is where the pandemic, I think, is actually different to some extent from every and maybe the 2008 financial crisis, but not even that um, in that what makes the pandemic unique among all the events you listed because all those are moments where you remember where you were. Like you remember where you were when you found out about 9-11. Um, you remember where you were when you found out that Donald Trump was going to be the president. Um, 2008 is a little bit different, but you probably remember where you were when you found out that like Lehman was going bankrupt and the stock market was- Well, bankrupt. I was working as a speechwriter for the president of Merrill Lynch at the time. So yes, I do <laughs> actually remember that very, very well. Hey, seriously? <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> Anthony Mac, Anthony? No, it was, he was the global wealth management president, but it was oh, Dan okay. O'Neill was the president, was the CEO at the time. Oh my not, God. Uh, not wow. for much longer anyways, but yes. That's for real. Um, All right, so we got we got uh, uh, a couple questions for Dan. Um, okay, uh, and I'll then, answer this very quickly though. This yeah. is different though, in it, compared to everything else you just said, this isn't just a crisis that we realize is in the world. This is a crisis that has affected every single person in their day-to-day -day lives. You know, we're doing this because of, I don't know of that this is that. Well, this is and this is what they'll say. Like this has never really happened before at the scale. Yeah. But they said the same thing in about 9/11. We'd never had an attack on American soil, right? But from like it, the attack it, on American, but it wasn't soil. an attack that made you stay home, right? It wasn't exactly. It wasn't. Uh, you know, th there were things that or were it shut down the NBA. There were th there were things that changed if you were going to take a flight or if you were going to do something else. This is something where everyday activities like going to the grocery store or, you know, trying to, uh, you know, going to a doctor, you know, normal everyday, you know, going to work has been fundamentally changed. And so in that sense, it, it is different. All right, Michael Fromberger, the floor is yours. Well, uh, so I just really had the question that I posted, which is uh, you talked a little bit earlier kind of about the erosion of protections within the government, sort of the checks and balances over the past decades. And that certainly matches what I've observed. Um, and it seems like those checks and balances that the founders designed, at least to me, that they didn't really take into account the possibility that we now see that the members of the legislature and the members of the executive might collectively feel more allegiance to kind of an external group, right, their party, than to their branch of government. So that what we see in some sense is not really, you know, the branches checking and balancing each other, but that the people in both of them in some sense are, I don't know when I go so far as to say colluding, I don't mean that in a sort of a legalistic sense, but, you know, cooperating with an, a set of ideals that doesn't match. And I basically wanted to get your take on that. Um, do you agree that that is a concern? And if you do, then I, I would be interested to hear if uh, you have any ideas about what things we could do to mitigate that problem. Um, I have some ideas of my own about what might help, but I'm not an expert on these things. I'm really just a, you know, observer and I would like to hear your thoughts basically. Sure. Um, I mean, I tend to, uh, you make a, a valid point. It's not that the, the, the founders were aware of the problem of factionalism. I mean, that shot through, uh, you know, uh, debates in the Federalist, but that said, you're right that essentially and we've had periods of intense polarization before the current one, think the late 19th century. Um, but yes, the, the, the reason 
that we're in the situation we are now is not just that Donald Trump got elected, but it's because polarization essentially rendered Congress dysfunctional. Um, and in doing so, Congress increasingly could not, for the, for, could not check the presidency um, because the party that was affiliated with the president didn't want to do so. And also, you know, be, it became so difficult for them to do even the things that, that the founding fathers expected them to do, like, let's say, deal with trade treaties or approve treaties um, or declare war or uh, set tariffs that voluntarily, in many instances, the members of Congress ceded that authority to the president. Um, and this worked for a while because most presidents took this power and recognized that there were, you know, and, and sort of self-constrained themselves, you know, that, that uh, you know, there, there were limits in terms of what they could do and did try to seek at least occasionally to get buy-in from Congress. In terms of what you could, the other element that's driving this is a sort of slow motion erosion of trust in authority and expertise, because that was the other check which is even if you had you know, a fiercely polarized or partisan Congress, there would be issues in which members of both parties would listen to experts telling them, this is what you wanna do in this particular emergency. You know, like saying, for example, that really, you know, like, I mean, I remember this happened in 2008, um, you know, when gas prices were really, really high right before they cratered, Hillary Clinton proposed releasing gas from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve when she was still a candidate and she got hammered by it by just about every economist saying, this is not a good idea. This is not the moment for that. Um, and as a result, she pulled back. I'm not sure now if you tried to do that, and in some ways we're seeing this play out with the coronavirus, there's a degree to which, you know, you see there's a slice of Republican intellectuals that clearly don't wanna listen to experts. Now what's encouraging, and this is the weird part, is that what ended this in the last, you know, what ended this problem of polarization the last time we went around were two world wars and a great depression. That those were sufficient shocks that, that by the post-war era, there was a, you know something of a, of a newer consensus. It is. It will be interesting to see if the coronavirus itself, if the pandemic itself, and the ways in which people have responded to it or not, um, actually cause greater trust and authority to emerge again because of the fact that folks like Trump proved to be wrong about certain things. Folks like Anthony Fauci um, proved to be right. All right. Uh, we have time for one more question before we turn to the really important subject of Maggie's fight with her neighbor. Andrew Bridges, I'm giving you the final question. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me okay? Uh, you're a little soft. Lean into the mic a little bit. Well, it's on a headset. I'll, I'll speak louder if that helps. Yep. Uh, thanks a lot for this. I'm enjoying these enormously. Um, so candidates often campaign based on plans and platforms and the like, uh, which I think one can interpret simply as signals as to which direction their compass points, because a lot of times it looks as though they're just putting platforms out there as window dressing. It seems to me from what I'm hearing that discerning how uh, a chief executive is going to respond in moments of unanticipated crisis may be more important. Uh, than focusing on platforms. Where does one look for signals as to how somebody will perform in the unanticipated crisis? And maybe what types of debate questions might be useful in order to draw those signals out of the candidates? Um, okay, so a few things. First of all, 
a rare area where I do think Trump actually is like other presidents is that I, I would push back on the notion that platforms are sort of symbols because um, one of the things about presidential candidates and presidents when they get elected, and this is true regardless of party, is that when presidents make promises during the campaign, they actually do want to fulfill them once they get elected. You know, they see their election as a, a pledge that they got elected making these sets of promises um, and therefore they want to actually execute them. And you've seen this with Trump um, on, on issues ranging from conducting a trade war with China. Does it matter who they've made the promises to, how much they want to fulfill them? No, I think I mean, it, it's whether the promises are public. I mean, it's whether, you know, it, it, but if it's a public promise, if it's something that they, you know, they say in a debate or they say in a speech um, or they say it in a convention, you know, their acceptance speech, yeah, they want to do those things. Um, now, that doesn't mean they always do them. There are times where, uh, you know, there, there are structural circumstances. Like if, you, if the president promises to do something, but then the, uh, the party that controls Congress is, is held by the opposition, well, that's going to, you know, make things more difficult. There are other rare times where a president makes a promise and then realizes it's not possible um, and so has to reverse. But they really don't like doing that um, at all. Uh, so, you know, that's in that sense, Trump is like other presidents in, in the ways he, he's wanted to uh, execute them. The other thing I would say is that the way you can tell how a, a candidate will respond to a crisis, this is you know, a quaint notion, but things like political experience matter. Um, you know, it's worth looking to see how, you know, candidates or nominees handled crises when they were, you know, in, in, in their prior experience. Um, you know, and this is why for the longest time, it used to be thought the, the recipe to become the president was to serve as a governor, because being a governor was thought to be the sort of best stepping stone um, to being a president. That hasn't been true uh, in the last 12 years or so. But, uh, you know, before that, you know, George W. Bush and, and Bill Clinton and uh, Ronald Reagan uh, and Jimmy Carter were all governors. Um, so but, but looking at what they did in their track record, to be honest, in terms of debate questions, I don't think that's it, it, you're not going to get much from that, um, unfortunately, because, you know, the easiest way to dodge it is just to say you don't respond to hypotheticals. All right, Dan Dresner, thanks so much for joining us. You are welcome to hang around for our resolution of this uh, epic battle in the condo board and in the pages of the New York Times. Is there going to um, be singing? Uh, Maggie will be singing. Uh, you will not have to sing, however. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I want to hear her sing. I'm not, I'm all right. Kidding. So, all right. Here's how this is going to work. First of all, um, I am launching a poll uh, that participants can address uh, on whether Maggie's neighbors should suck it up and appreciate Maggie's singing or whether Maggie should quiet down. Which um, would never happen. But. Now, you guys are, uh, feel free if you have an ideological position about neighbor <laughs> to answer it vote. without I'm not hearing. allowed to you know, vote. Can I vote? Can I vote a pox on both our houses just um, for fun? I can't. You know, if you can vote, you can vote. So you guys can vote now if you want, or you can wait and, and as I recommended to the New York Times, that it actually depends on whether Maggie can sing. Right. Um, and so you guys do what you do. Um, Maggie, before we edit your letter to the New York Times, uh, just give us the briefest of overviews as to this important controversy. Um, very important, Ben. And, and Joining us from 
which opera house it's is Mashallah. That? you know yeah. i was like i i was a toss-up for me was it going to be the met was it and i thought well, you know with all the world's opera houses uh closed just I, do la scala yeah yeah just do la scala because like yolo um, <laughs> and i and then i found out that my hair and my skin tone are too similar to the background color so like i keep disappearing into it which is great um so it's sort of a dream um, but so my downstairs neighbors, um, who I would say would remain nameless, except that she signed her name on the letter to the New York Times. So Carol what's her name? Her name is Caroline. Um, she is a, uh, she Which is, is your last name. Middle name? The, middle that, name. That's my, yeah, that's my middle name. It's Sorry. My, it was just like, it's on her handle. And I'm like looking at it right oh, now. I was like, wait a second, what? Caroline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she and her husband and their six-year-old who is, who shares a name with my dog live downstairs. And since I've moved in, um, they have been quite unhappy with me and I have done almost anything beyond reasonable uh, to accommodate them, including but not limited to installing two layers of um, commercial grade carpet padding and carpeting um, over my entire home. So, that, and that wasn't even about the singing, that was about the sound of my dog's feet on the hardwood floor. Um, so we've never spoken directly. Um, there's always been, you know, an exchange of emails or letters through condo boards or other places. And now our arena of choice is the New York Times. <laughs> so <Sorry>. she wrote- <laughs> I also wrote teach a... property law. And so all of these types <laughs> oh, of like condo disputes are like, I will literally take this back to my students and be like, so a lot of the lawyering you're going to do is going to have nothing to do with lawyering. It's going mm -hmm. to have to do with writing sternly written letters mm -hmm. to people <laughs> or so leveraging. I have so many sternly written letters about this and other related items with neighbors that I'm happy to share with you. So um, Maggie, your um, uh, this came to, I don't wanna say fruition, whatever it was. In, uh, she wrote a letter to Katie Weaver the adv an advice columnist at the New York Times that was a thinly veiled yes. reference to you. Yes. And she claims she has no idea who you are. Right. You believe that for a minute? No, I mean, how I'm pretty familiar with the professional and semi-professional opera singer circuit here in Washington, DC. Uh, Renee Fleming doesn't have apartment neighbors. Um, she lives in a house in the Palisades. And most of the other young artists from the Kennedy Center scene are, live together and they don't live in the district. So if you live in Washington, DC and you have a, a person singing arias at random times, um, you know, the market's pretty small there. Also, your name is Caroline, you know, like there's just- And, and also there's only one person that you've been obsessively complaining to the condo board about, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, should we edit your letter? Yeah, let's do it. All right, we're gonna click on screen share. We're gonna, we're gonna go to Maggie's letter. Am I able to offer advice too? Even yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so you've got basically, I, I, I like uh, these uh, things, but I think um, you gotta start with the history of it. So, so I wasn't sure because, you know, the letters that they publish are so straight and to the point. And that's why I included, I figured given your expertise, you could, you know. No, I think you, I think you want to start with, you know, like a few weeks ago, you answered a letter from a DC, Washington DC based writer named Caroline who struggled to deal with a phantom of the opera in her apartment building. Um, um, 
So I think you can be a little bit more dramatic about okay. outing yourself here. Um, I don't know. I disagree. I think I like that. I don't know. Um, I was going to or like, I am the, or why don't you, well, oh, you mean, are you just going to say like, I am the phantom? Oh yeah. I was, yes, I was, I was going to say something like as Mitt Romney. Yes. I love a good Mitt Romney say, reference. Um, yes, I agree the with The phantom. No, 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 C apostrophe and M-O-I, no S. Ah, sorry. Yeah, and there's an apostrophe between the C and the E. Yes, c'est vrai. All right, Um, You should also, okay, none of this should be italicized, but whatever. I know, I italicized it because I was like, this is optional to show on screen. Oh, it was, it was, oh, that's why it's italicized. Yeah, I was like, yeah. Caroline okay. is my neighbor downstairs neighbor. Um, uh, oh, so you know, in in I, my point was I'm not actually a, the phantom because the soprano, you know, star of the show. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a little bit too referency. Yes, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think I think you're going Just too say, deep in the it, metaphor there. Which so. is terrible because Phantom of the Opera is not even an opera, but I digress. Right. So Andrew um, Lloyd Webber, you cad. Exactly, had, and like I know that my cats was such garbage. Sorry, is, is tuned in. It was garbage. Um, she's tuned in and watching this show, and has been following along the developments of the situation closely. And she will be thrilled to know that we. That Do we you want me to describe the coast theorem to Caroline and how it could maybe help her in bargaining for a preferred rate of like of well, but I'm, I'm, uses? I'm hanging on <laughs> here to the to the, the key like the, the actual text of the letter here. Um, and I think we should say like for the last several years, I've had a complicated relationship with several of my condo building neighbors. Condo neighbors, take up building. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Um, my condo neighbors who don't like my dog. Yes. Oh, really? um, oh they hate poor Ziva and She's the um, cute, for anyone who's never seen Ziva, go look at my Twitter. Yeah, she's, she's a nice picture. dog. She's a good dog. Um, now, um, to- I'm gonna literally show this to my property class. Please I'm do. Gonna uh, make, hey, I'm gonna make them watch this. this. The I'm about to teach condos and co-ops next week. So, many of them, so who are we quoting here? So that is a letter that was sent to me, that was left for me on my door the day I moved in. Can okay. we also just say that like, I don't think the New York Times gives a shit about everything that happened except the Arias, which is right. a little bit why I think that you shouldn't be yep. talking about the dog or the prior right. letters or anything yep. else. So oh, like, you think, you think we I, I think that yeah. sentence needs to go. Okay. I think the whole, no, I think that I can't click on anything. I can't, the whole, the whole paragraph, the paragraph. needs to yeah, kind of Yeah, go. I don't, I okay. was emotionally involved, but I agree. All right, so. Um, yes, I think that that's, that entry sentence is enough. To yeah, and then we can say there's been, there's been a deal. There's been a whole right. deal. Yeah, there's been a whole. If they need more details, you can see in lieu of show in which we edited this letter. Yeah. And decided my not current to quandary is this: my neighbor <laughs> who has been uh, less than civil. Yeah. Always go with the understatement on the uh, criticism of people. Um, wrote to you. Yep. To ask for advice on how to handle my singing. Um, 
in current can like period no after singing period right. um i am quite careful to be mindful of my auditory pollution as she calls it is that her quote yes given our current shared reality but i cannot cease rehearsals um uh, so this is redundant. Yeah, exactly. Um, my Can I make a suggestion? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could say, I, you know, I, I'm trying to think of other things that you, you cannot cease rehearsals just as, you know, a, a basketball player couldn't stop shooting hoops or- Good, I mean, you, good. You might be like an analogy, you know, analogy might yeah. be- That's not the, the basketball terrible no, no, like analogy. The basketball no one bad, gives, gives a shit about analogies any more than like, I don't know, you'd have to say something about writing or journalists any more than like, you know, any more than like a journalist could like stop typing at their typewriter or something. Right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Because mm. I wish audit, you edit every loud. Um, I'm really good at editing. I got trained very closely as an editor. I'm like an okay writer. I'm not. My neighbor um, has made made skill. no attempt to communicate with me directly before writing to the New York Times. You wanna uh really no, own before in on writing that. before writing to you. You said already said to you. So say yeah, it again. Good. Yeah. Um as she admitted. So you wanna uh yeah, that's like frame can. this as a concession yeah, on her. Yep, yeah, that's a good that's um, good. Um and then so there's a simpler way to do this next yeah. point, um, which is I don't say something like no 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 don't make it a don't make it I make it like as as a person well versed yes uh, yes my mother as someone well versed yeah contrary to the purple hair I actually know yeah. what rules I'm breaking when I break them and no capitals but italicized yes Whoops. um sorry whoa what happened. I don't know. Just like I don't know. Um, oh wow, all of the things. Sorry. Okay, there you go. Um, White gloves and party. Uh, so we need to like simplify yeah, some just, of this. Yeah, we can just order take some this out. I was emotionally attached. I, to I was going to suggest just Emily Post and Miss Manners. Yes, one hundred percent. Good, Emily Post. There you go. Yep. Um. Con no, no, no. I actually do like this. Emily Post, comma, Miss Manners, and General Principles of Warfare. I think you should say Sun Tzu, right? Yes. So I'm actually- Yes, yeah, put Sun Tzu there rather than General. Because of my virtual background, but I'm in front of our Warfare Tactics and Strategy bookshelf, which is four wide. So- Yeah, but, but again, you're, you're not listing wide. all the books that you know. That's true. Uh, I think you want Sun Tzu here or Clausewitz or something. No, Sun Tzu. Yeah. No, Sun Tzu. Um, it's wow. okay, less, come back to that it's less conflicting. I consulted the literature. <laughs> um, none of my volumes offers useful guidance. So what should I do? Should I let Caroline know I saw her yep. letter? Um, we don't speak regularly, so there is no way to casually mention this. Um, or should I simply continue? Oh, Michael just direct texted me to say, Michael Fromberger, who was on before, said that we should 
principles should be principles. We have to flip principles. Where is principles? Oh, see, this is why group editing is so important. Uh, I don't see the word principles anymore. Oh, maybe we deleted it. I think now. we got rid Doesn't of matter. it. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's gone now. Never mind. We don't speak regularly, so there's no way to. Or should I simply continue limiting my rehearsal length and time, and singing outside on the balcony whenever weather allows? I am truly at a loss. I love. I, I delete help. Yes. I yeah. and I also delete. I am truly at a loss. Just leave it in a question. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, there is my suggestion, our collective suggestion Beautiful. for the letter you should send to Katie Weaver. I will send um, that. And um, uh, Maggie, you're a badass. I love this. But now yeah. is but the wait, part the where where we now actually get to decide. Right. Is Maggie's neighbor's complaint valid? Um, so. Y'all, Maggie is going to perform uh, an aria of She's her gonna choice. She's going to perform an excerpt from an aria. Which aria? Um, what are you going to be singing so for us? I'm going to sing a portion of Steal Me Sweet Thief, which is from The Old Maid and the Thief. Um, and I, I thought long and hard about doing O Mio Babino Caro, but I was like, first of all, everybody knows that. Um, and you all know what it, it should sound like. And I feel like Minotti is very much underappreciated. All right. Um, I should warn you, anybody who um, is experiencing this on a headset um, or whose volume is up quite loud. Yeah, it may get shrill. We got yeah, a soprano here. It may get here. shrill. And there is one high note. I tried to pick something that was, you know, not too much. I'm going to be as far away from it as I can. We have had some feedback issues with Zoom. Um, so again, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna be forgiving of the fact that this too. is over mediocre tech here. Oh yeah. Uh, so so. And also, like honestly, if anyone could do it better than I'm about to do it, you're welcome to come on Zoom, and I will applaud you, and we can be friends. Yeah, go for it. All right, okay. the floor is yours, right. Maggie Feldman Pelch. Thank you, friends. You're the first live music app. performance uh, in lieu of will, It will play the accompaniment for me. You cannot hear it. Steal me, oh, steal me, sweet thief, for time's flight is stealing my youth, and the cares of life still fleeting time. Steal me, thief, for life is brief and full of theft and Tell us about uh, where that's from and uh, who wrote it and 
uh, what we need to know about Steal Me Sweet Thief. So as I make the accompaniments up, um, in this particular part of the opera, and so obviously it's in English, right? Which is always a really uh, good thing to do when you don't know who your audience is. Um, so then you don't have to explain the words as well. But for those that are not as familiar with opera as a genre, um, soap operas and regular opera are very much related. It's supposed to be like trash television, which is why everybody's always dying and sleeping with everybody's sisters and brothers and whatever else. So Minotti, um, in this particular part of the opera, um, it, it begins with a recit, which is like spoken word, but sort of sung. And essentially the, the main character is pacing around wondering like, why this guy in her boarding house never made a move. Um, which for a soprano is all but unheard of because we're mostly dying or on the verge of dying or begging someone, mostly our fathers, to let us get married. Um, I mean, the number, I have a number of, of scars and bruises on mostly the left side of my body from falling at various rehearsals and performances because people don't catch me when I die. Um, and so oh, I thought, right, like, well, because we just die it's with great It's unsporting. Right. And, and I thought, um, given the current tone of the world, I could sing something about the threat of dying if you don't get laid, rather than actually dying. I applaud this. And as, as so, but I have to say, as someone who is truly an opera neophyte, I enjoyed that immensely. Well, oh, I have, I mean, that's so nice. Thank can you. I, can I? I just say, uh, Maggie, it is pretty bold, and I, you know, I uh, to sing twentieth-century music in to an audience that is not necessarily expecting it, because the audience may not know the difference between twentieth-century, uh, 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 mid-late twentieth-century composition and singing out of tune. And so that's Fair. just that's a bold choice to sing Thank the you. naughty. Um, and I, right, and then there's intonation is key, especially when you're going to sing a B flat at somebody over Zoom. So again, I I have yeah. I, I mean, it's, not, it's not like singing Mozart or Handel where like you oh, can oh. tell. Right, like there's no, and that's kind of like I have I couldn't hear myself because I have an earbud in, and also when I sing, it sort of sounds like an electric can opener or a garbage disposal, which is like. Um, and the way that I found out that um, Zoom and Opera don't always mix is that I was listening back to recordings of my lessons, which I still have just over Zoom. And normally we record them on my phone, but that's in person. So recording, listening to the Zoom recordings, when I sing well, when um, there's the right vibrations per second, you hear nothing on the recording back to you. But interestingly enough, my partner who may be on Zoom down the way in the house, it cuts out his sound on Zoom too. And it also cuts out people outside, so. Well, there you go. All right, we got to wrap up, but yes, I will do. be friends. Yeah. This, the is fine. this is amazing. Thank you the so much. Are, uh, I gave you the opposite view. I like this is the view. It's that you beautiful. I so appreciate this. Just warmed my heart so much. Seventy-one percent says Maggie's neighbor should suck it up and deal, and four and twenty-nine percent says a pox on both their houses. Good, Maggie. Not a single member of the really? audience said uh, you should just quiet down. You're so, the best. We so wrote you a good letter. Total victory. 
Um, your, your, Thank your, you. your approval ratings are higher than the president's. Thank Send the letter to Katie Weaver, and I will, of course, tweet this episode at her. Thank uh, you, guys. This we will really be fun. back tomorrow with Hannah Nieprash to talk. Oh, good. Hannah's on tomorrow. Fantastic. Talk, talk healthcare economics. Yay. Thank you to Dan Dresner and for Maggie for Dan, being such a great Dan, it was so great, great having you on. Thank you so much for coming. It was always wonderful. happy to talk to By the top. You're hilarious. You are a very funny person. Thanks. I like, like hanging out with you. Tomorrow. Same with you, Maggie. It is Thank really you fun. Guys. You are Bye, fun. guys. Bye, Remember, everybody. if you can't have fun. In, in lieu of fun. We'll be here tomorrow. We'll be here tomorrow.